I guess the first ideas that come to mind are probably my brain clocks into how I'm similar to the person. I latch on to how I'm similar and probably how I'm different. I don't even know if that's conscious, but I think that's the first thing that runs through my mind. So then it's like, then I start the checklist sort of of like where I'm going to have to get imaginative or where I'm going to have to expand on something or sort of shrink it into something else depending on my experience. But I think that's kind of where I start. I'm a very visual person too, so I think I'll start to think about maybe some archetypes or people I know that might be similar. It's like this this character is like this type of person or this person I know or this type of person I see on the street or something like that. And I'll, and I'll start to create like a, like a visual bank too. Every business, whether or not they realize it, is an idea business. And great ideas can come from anywhere. The people at Gray have a long history of finding and creating famously effective ideas. And so with Gray Matter, we explore the ideas shaping our world. We ask creators, artists, founders, and leaders from different industries about how they came up with their best ideas. And that's Gray Matter. On this episode of Gray Matter, we'll find out how building characters builds character. Hi, I'm Jason Connor, Global Chief Client Officer at Gray. This week, we're discussing the craft and ideas that come from a career on stage. We're talking to Broadway star Jessie Mueller about her theatrical career and the characters she's created along the way. Grey Matter producer Joey Scarillo chatted with Jessie about her start in Chicago, the journey she took on her way to Broadway, and the advice she learned from another legend of stage and screen. Joey also had a career in theater before working for Grey as a stage manager, and so Jessie makes that connection during their conversation. Jessie is best known for starring roles in both the 2014 Beautiful, the Carol King musical, where she played the infamous Carol King, and the lead role Jenna in Waitress in 2016. Jessie is also a screen actor, having been in Steven Spielberg's 2017 film The Post, starring Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep, as well as starring alongside Jessica Biel in the Hulu original series Candy. Jessie is highly awarded. She has won a Tony Award, a Grammy, two Drama Desk Awards, and two Joseph Jefferson Awards. Jessie is active when it comes to raising awareness and funds for various causes, including LGBTQ rights through the Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS organization and other initiatives, including anti-gun violence awareness, women's rights, and adoption. She is an alum of Syracuse University and educates future generations of actors by teaching masterclasses to college theater students. This is Jesse Mueller. I find myself compiling uh, pictures, even mm-hmm. if it's just like of the era of something, maybe it's a different era, something I'm working on, or even a picture that might not be looks like the character I'm working on, but just captures some sort of feeling or essence that I get, I get drawn to something that just sort of aligns with what I'm experimenting with. And, um, and then I think it's, I think I've also learned that it's helpful to watch other things as well, like engage in other sort of go watch someone else's work. Like if I'm in a play, go see another play or make sure I'm watching mm-hmm. other TV shows or listening to other music or whatever, just to kind of like either get inspired or sort of clarify what I'm working on, how it's, how it's similar, how it's different, that sort of thing. Almost like a, like a mood board. It is. Yeah. Personal, yeah. personal character Pinterest, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Yeah, it very much is. Yeah, character Pinterest. Exactly. Whenever you're building these mood boards or these like character Pinterest, um, (laughs) you know, for some of the roles that you've done in the past, have there been any like really big discoveries or big surprises that like you were like, wow, I didn't know that this is how this character would come to life? Oh, interesting. Um, So I got to do the first thing that came to mind, I, I got to do 
a, a musical that was based on the life of Carol King, the singer songwriter. And I just remember finding photos from her life. You know, to me, they were research photos to her. They're like, well, those are photos of my life. <laughs> but um, just being surprised, especially as a younger woman, I think most of us have this if we know who Carol King is, which most everyone does, it's like you have, I have this vision of her on the cover of Tapestry, like in her blue jeans with her cat and her like beautiful wild curly hair. And she's, she's like our ultimate natural earth woman. But she, when she was coming up and writing songs and in the fifties and late fifties, early sixties, she was like, she was quaffed like those little sixties girls. And I guess, I guess that really surprised me. Um, mm -hmm. I remember this one photo of her. I think they were on a ski vacation or something. And she has these great like cat eye glasses and this sort of like bouffant hair. And um, so I guess, yeah, I was just surprised by that. And just, I think it's such a reminder that uh, like, we're never just one thing. A character is a person and people aren't just one thing, you know, and it's an amalgamation of all these different things and you're different in different times of your life and stuff like that. Yeah. Did you approach playing Carol differently than you would have approached a character who maybe came from a writer's head versus having a real person source material? I think I just, I think I just dove into, there was just more source material right. to me. You know what I mean? There was more historical source material. I think the process was probably fairly similar, but there was just, to me, there was such a treasure trove to like dig into because I knew it was less making up the answers to a lot of questions. It was more finding the answers because they actually could be found. You know what I mean? The the, yeah. the historical stuff was, was there. So when you set out on this journey of uh, becoming an actor, what was it about bringing characters to life that, that you really clung to? Why theater acting? Why, why characters? Well, I think theater acting was interesting or appealing to me because it's, it's what I knew. My, mm -hmm. my parents are actually actors. So I grew up, both of my parents are actors, my mom and my dad, and they started and founded their careers in Chicago. There's a great theater scene there, an amazing theater scene in Chicago. And so I grew up watching a lot of theater, watching a lot of plays, um, because it's what they did. It's what their friends did. So it was just a part of our life. I don't, I don't think, I guess in some ways it wasn't unusual to me. It was just what mom and dad did. So um, I had an early access to it. So I guess that's sort of why theater acting. I mean, I would go see movies or TV shows, but I didn't have the same sort of connection to it or, or access point that I felt like I did with mm -hmm. theater growing up. And because of that, I, I appreciated it as an audience member first. So I, I remember, you know, as a little kid, being fascinated by it and fascinated by the sounds and the sights and all that. And then as it got a little older, I think it, it sort of hit me on a deeper level and I would go see something and get so moved or sad or overjoyed or just have all these, especially as like a, a pre preteen teen, you know, just feelings about everything. And I just thought like, that's the coolest thing. I wish I could, mm -hmm. I think to me at that time, it just seemed like a superpower. It was like, I wish, maybe I could do that. Like maybe I could make somebody feel something like that, or I could, I could have that sort of impact on somebody. And I think that's sort of what first drew me to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, right? Like a lot of people get into theater and it's the opposite of what they're raised in. But for you, mm -hmm. you, you came through it from a life where you were raised in theaters and around stages. Did it feel inevitable or was there ever like, Jesse, you should go be a lawyer or Jesse, you should go uh, be a doctor. <laughs> I don't think I had the skill set to be a lawyer or a doctor. It, you know what? Looking back, I don't, 
I don't feel like my parents either discouraged or encouraged it in, in really in one way or another. Mm -hmm. I think they were very, I think they were very cool about sort of watching what it seemed like we were into and encouraging that, but it's hard to, it's hard to say like whether I came up with this idea on my own or not. (laughs) Um, I have an older brother and sister and a younger brother, and all of us are, are performers in some way, shape or form. And so it is, I don't know. I think about all the time. It's like, would I have done this on my own? I, I don't know because I think the influence was there so early. It's a little hard to tell. Yeah. Speaking of that influence, right? So you have your family and, you know, a very uh, performative theater forward family heavy mm-hmm. into the arts, but were there other people along the way who supported you and helped you get where you are? Who were some of those supporters? Oh gosh. I think because my family did it, my older brother and sister did it. I was always sort of trying to try to find like my own way to it as well and feel like, uh, cause sometimes I felt like I was just following in people's footsteps, I think. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to, so I, th- I had, um, I had a really wonderful drama teacher in high school. I went to, went to, uh, Evanston Township High School and one of the, the new theater directors that came in, his name was Aaron Carney. And I just remember he had worked at Second City a lot and he was kind of like younger than the gentleman who'd been running the department before. And what I really, I felt like he was such a cheerleader for all of us, like everybody of my generation in that, in those sort of classes that grew up under his tutelage. It, he just treated us like, he kind of treated us like we were adults. It's not like we were kids playing at this. I think he was one of the first ones that sort of instilled a confidence in me that I that I could do this and someone was taking me seriously doing it. Mm-hmm. And, and I really, I really remember that. I mean, certainly along the way though, too, I just like, I, I was really fortunate when I came back after college, I went to college at Syracuse university and then I came back to Chicago cause I wanted to, that was my plan to come back and, and try to try to work. I wanted to come back to Chicago and be part of that theater community. And I was really fortunate and got a job like right away in the, in the, chorus of a union show an equity show and just getting to watch everybody work. I mean, I remember that was one of those like pinch me moments for me Mm -hmm. and just thinking like, I'm really in a rehearsal room. Like I'm watching these people. And these were people that I had some of these actors I had watched growing up. So it was so interesting to me to be on what felt like the other side of it. I always saw sort of the results. So it was so interesting to see them working and see how they got there you know, it's one thing to go to school and read a book or learn about it or practice it. But when you're actually in the job, you're actually in the environment. I think it's a very different thing. There's definitely, there's a huge part of learning on the job, I think, with any sort of artistic endeavor, just a career, like getting in that room and and figuring out the practicalities of like how you make it happen. Yeah. Did you get some of those experiences at Syracuse? Yeah. I mean, I totally did too. Um, Syracuse University, it's great because there's an equity theater that's actually housed in the same um, facility as a, as the uh, theater department at Syracuse stage. Mm-hmm. So you get the opportunity to see professional shows and to kind of mix with the people who are doing them as well. And then sometimes they even use um, some of the students as casting as a casting pool. So depending on what shows they're doing, if usually if they're like bigger musicals or they need younger people for some of the parts, they'll have a casting call through the university. And then you get that, you get that experience of what that's like to, to do that and to do, I'm trying to think, yeah, I think we did eight shows a week. It's like a regular sort of professional schedule. Yeah. yeah, And that's a whole other thing you have to get used to. Yeah. As you know. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. 
as you know very well. Um, when was what was your first show? When was the first time you you set foot on a stage? So my first professional show was a production of Once Upon a Mattress at Drury Lane Oakbrook. Yeah, the Drury Lane Theater in Oakbrook, Illinois, and I was in the chorus. And um, yeah, that was my first professional show. And then it was just like a hop, skip, and a jump over to Broadway, right? Yeah, you know, it was a pack of cigarettes and a couple of lettuce leaves later and a tube of chapstick and a dance bell. No, um, don't smoke, kids. I was I was really fortunate, though. I think also because Chicago is maybe somewhat of a smaller pool. You have more subscription-based theaters there. It's not a lot of big theater owners like you have in New York or these independent producers that are coming in. So it all works a little differently. So once I started working... It, work really begot more work. Mm-hmm. Casting directors started to, you know, they, they're very, they're very aware of who's doing what. And if new people are coming into town and things like that. So I was able to get more auditions from that first gig. And then I just sort of kept, kept auditioning, kept working. And yeah, my, right. My, my journey to Broadway was unusual in the fact that I actually auditioned for the show. I ended up doing on Broadway in Chicago mm-hmm. because the casting director, the producing team were working on another project. They were casting a tour of American idiots. And while they were in Chicago looking for people for that tour, they had this other project sort of in the file folder. They were working on this revival of on a clear day. You can see forever that was going to star Harry Connick jr. And somehow I still don't have this whole story. Somehow my name got on this list for an audition for the the female lead opposite Harry. And so I auditioned in Chicago and I met Jim Carnahan, the casting director, and eventually sort of like kept moving through on that process. And they actually, it's like a longer process. I did labs and workshops. It was the kind of thing of like, well, we're looking at all these different people, but they're not available. If you could make your way to New York and do this reading or do this workshop. And, and then eventually... I was getting great feedback and we really like you and, you know, we're considering you for the cover and, but if you could make yourself available for this and that, and then eventually they, they kind of took me aside and we were doing a, what's called a lab. It was like a month long, just basically there are different contracts for different as, as you know, as a former stage manager, it is a workshop of sorts. You get together and you read the play and look through the music and labs, you start to stage things. And it was toward the end of this month long lab. I think it was, they kind of, they literally took me out into the hallway, the producers, <laughs> and they said, we're going to give you the part. And I was like, what? But then they were like, but you can't tell anyone because they had this whole plan of like how they were going to roll out the press for this. And it was like, it, it was crazy. I mean, things, then it was like getting on this roller coaster that I had never been on before that I didn't really know existed. And, um, but that's sort of how that came to be. Wow. Okay. So, so really from- That's the long convoluted story. No, it's, it's a great happened. story. I don't, I don't think I real. I don't think I, uh, realized that you went right from Chicago to on a clear day. So your first New York show was on Broadway. It was, it was. Was there, yeah. a, was there a moment between Chicago to New York or either between on a clear day to now where you just kind of stopped and looked in the mirror and just thought like, okay, I got this. Like, this is, <laughs> this is where I want to be. This is it. No, <laughs> <laughs> I always have the moments where I look in the mirror and I just, I go, I should just speak for myself. I don't think I will ever get to a moment where I think like, yeah, I get this, you know, like whether that means, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful to say there are 
parts of me that have grown in my confidence with what I'm capable of and what I bring to the table. But as far as people, and I'm not saying this is what you were asking, but I think this is what a lot of people ask is like, when do you think you you've made it? And to me, that always feels like made it would be if that's a thing, it would be like, I'm good. Like I'll always have work. I'll always be able to pay my rent or my mortgage or whatever. And I just feel like that moment doesn't exist in this business. It's not like you get tenured and you know, there'll always be a place for you. It's a very strange business. It's a very fickle business. I've been really, really fortunate and I'm so grateful for all the opportunities I've had, but I really do know it could change on a dime. I mean, anybody, well, everybody faced some sort of smack in the face during the pandemic. It's like for creative people, for especially live performers, it was such a, it, reversal isn't, isn't the right word. It, 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 you know, just everything changed, everything changed, everything kind of stopped. And in some ways we were used to things stopping because something always stops. It, a gig always finishes. You're always looking for the next thing. So in that way, uh, I think a lot of creative people, a lot of live performers were um, sort of prepared in ways that maybe other people weren't for the challenges that faced us moving forward. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I, I don't think I ever, yeah, no, I don't look in the mirror. I, I have the opposite, which is, which is looking in the mirror and thinking, is this, is this, is this where I'm supposed to be? Is, do I do this? Do I, is this just crazy? Should I? do something else? Should I, but I think for me, I've just learned that that's, that's very normal. In some ways that's just like keeping myself in check. And yeah, that's just like part of who I am through all of this. Yeah. I mean, I could see how that is, is a pretty normal feeling considering, you know, a lot of the theater industry, the question a lot of people get asked, actors, designers, directors, stage managers is what are you, what are you working on next? What do you, you got going on? So it's, <laughs> It's like yeah. this constant societal pressure of booking your next gig and, yeah. you know, this, again, pressure that is put on us to, to always know what's coming next. And yeah. it's not always, we're not always fortunate enough to know that. Maybe, maybe there's like a few, like maybe like a Patty Lapone. she might, you know, she might be okay, but. Right. But I have a feeling, and excuse me, Patty, because, you know, I don't, I don't know you, I admire you greatly, but like, I have a feeling that she's you know, because she's Patty LaPaul and she probably feels like, well, I got to do something because I'm Patty LaPaul and people are right. expecting me to be Patty LaPaul. So it's like there's this whole other right. level of this sort of pressure that's either coming from the outside or the inside that just everybody's always negotiating something. Yeah, I think that's what I think that's what makes theater people just um, just wonderful and scrappy and, um, <laughs> and crazy, and crazy and, yeah. a little bit. Right. Absolutely. Um, but you sort of mentioned it, but was there ever like a serious moment where you thought about throwing in the towel where you thought this lifestyle isn't for me, this, you know, I don't think I can, I don't think I can keep doing eight plus shows a week. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But it's, it's come at, it's come at strange, like in strange stints, because I think one of the challenges of getting, of doing a schedule like that. And like you said, you're always looking for the next gig. So you, you do the schedule, then you, you go into the next thing and the next thing, and the next thing. So you don't really know how sort of abnormal it is. Mm -hmm. Then something like a pandemic hits and you're forced to go from 60 to zero. And the effect that it has on like your body, your mental health, your, your adrenaline levels, it's, it's crazy. And, and I think 
for a lot of people, certainly for me, it was it was a chance to reevaluate and even something as simple as, oh, I could like do my day like a normal person. Like I could sort of rev up in the morning, get things done. And then at a certain point, it's like, oh, it's dinner time. It's time to watch some stories on the television. And then I'm going to wind down. Even coming back to performing live again, the whole idea of like revving up, having your thing at the end of the day is so strange, especially when you haven't done that for two years. I, I mean, we could talk for hours about this. I really think eight shows a week is really, really hard. It's gotten harder for me as I've as I've changed as a person, as I've gotten older, as my priorities have changed, um, I've gotten to do some theater and uh, some like TV and film stuff too. So like getting the chance to do something like that, where like the schedule is very different. I mean, you never really know what the schedule is going to be like with that, but I- I've really enjoyed doing lots of different things because I think that's healthier for me. Mm-hmm. Maybe rather than going from eight shows a week to eight shows a week to eight shows a week, it's an illusion. I think it to most from the outset, it looks like, oh, you only work a couple hours a night, but like it's it's hard. It's really, really hard. It's a privilege, but it's really hard. Yeah. If you could go back to day one, is there anything you would have done differently? Mm. Um, I mean, yes, but like, would it have been possible? I, the thing that I notice now and and remember is I, I, I do feel like I, I wouldn't change things, but I'm, I missed a lot. Mm-hmm. I make jokes with my, with my friends that there were certain decades of my life where like all I did was work. You know, I missed everybody's parties. I missed everybody's, I missed holidays. I missed weddings. I missed funerals. Cause you're doing a show. Mm. Cause you can't, you can't miss. I mean, you can't, or, or, or you get that idea sort of instilled in you, this sort of show must go on thing. And when you're kind of in the hamster wheel of it, you really do feel like, like, like that's what it is. I, I there are a couple of times where I wish I could have gone back and prioritized things differently. Um, I'm grateful that people in my life understood the decisions I made, but man, it's so, it's so hard to say because like you do what you do and you made the decisions you, you made and the priorities that you had because of who you were and the situation that was there. But I mean, yeah, or I would go back and even just on more recent shows and just wish that I had had, uh, like more bandwidth. Mm -hmm. But again, I don't know. I don't know if that's, if that actually would have been possible. I like to think I did the best I could, (laughs) but yeah, I mean, I wish I, I wish I could have gone back and had more, had more bandwidth for things and had a better quote unquote balance, but I don't, I don't know if it would have been possible. Yeah. Ever seeking balance. Yeah. Right. Some people say it's not actually like, that's a a fool's errand, but I, I don't know. I'd like to think it's possible. I think so. It's, you know, we talk a lot on this show about courage, where it comes from, mm-hmm. you know, how people start businesses and come sure. up with big ideas. But where does your courage come from? I mean, getting up on stage is takes a lot of courage for a lot of people couldn't do it. But where does where does your courage come from? Wow. I have never thought of that before. Like, especially in those words, my courage, because I know that a lot of people, that's like the last thing they'd want to do is get up on a stage in front of people. And for me, again, I don't know where this comes from. I feel oddly comfortable. Well, I do. I do. And I don't. I feel oddly comfortable stepping out usually as a character, as something mm-hmm. I've, I've worked on. Uh, to me, there's like a safety in that. It's harder for me to step out as myself, like sometimes in a concert situation or, you know, to have to get up 
in front of people and yeah. And just be myself that that's harder. That for some reason takes more courage to me. The courage comes from preparation and the preparation comes from, I don't know if it's the, if it's the right project and I feel like I'm the right person to tell the story, I guess I, I take courage in that. There's just something else that sort of takes over and hopefully lets me get that story across. Yeah. Is there, is there a place that you go or a thing that you do when you're, you know, looking for inspiration or something to get out of your own head? Hmm. Well, if I can, uh, like, I'm usually based in New York city. If I can get out of the city, Mm -hmm. I find that that usually helps. I, it's just so, it's so stimulating in New York city. Sorry. I said the city, like I hate it when people do that. New York city. There are many cities. If, um, yeah, New York city is very stimulating. Like I just forget and you get away and you think, oh my gosh, no, it's so loud and it smells and it, it gets you on all, in all the, in all the senses all the time. So if I can get out of New York city, if I can get to some nature, if I can get to some quiet, if I can, that really helps to reset me. Fresh air helps to reset me. Seeing the sky helps to reset me. And I think it just quiets my brain. And when my brain quiets, that's sort of when my, my spirit quiets. And I think that's when I can be, that's when I can be most creative. That's when creativity can flow through me. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I think that's where that comes from for me. Do you, do you make time while you're, you know, in rehearsals or developing a character, working on a show to do that? Or is that something that you reward yourself with when you have the time? I think maybe it's the latter. Maybe it would be better if I did it during the process. But I think most times it's it's um it's hard to do that just within time constraints. Mm-hmm. Either processes or you have a very specific time period usually with the process. Unless unless you know way ahead of time you're going to work on something and then you can kind of carve out carve out your own time. But I really like doing the work with people. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's a lot there's a lot I do on my own, but I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say that that work is, is supremely structured. I'm not, I'm not one to necessarily say like, I'm going to carve out a day, you know, an hour, two hours today to work on my character. It's something that I'm just sort of, it's always in my brain. I think Mm -hmm. it's always percolating, percolating around in there. And then, and then I really value getting together with the people I'm going to do the thing with Mm -hmm. and like getting into the mix and seeing, and seeing what happens there, what, what everybody's bringing to it and, and getting in the, getting into the process of it with other people. Yeah. What was, what was that process like, for example, on Waitress? Waitress was very collaborative. We had Adrian Shelley's brilliant film that Mm -hmm. she made that the, that that musical Waitress was based on, you know, it wasn't like these characters were coming out of thin air. They were so well established with what Adrian had created in the film. But I mean, there were things that were being reinvented and with Waitress, like I came into the process fairly late, actually, they had been developing it for six years, seven, maybe seven years Mm. from the idea of like getting the rights to the film to make it into a musical, um, which I think happened fairly early right after it hit Sundance and then sort of developing it, going through the different people in the artistic process and uh, finding people to write the music. And they finally, you know, they settled on Sarah Bareilles and she started developing music and, um, and then definitely getting the, getting those first cast together. Like there were, there were several workshops. I know that they did. I I'm trying to remember when I came into the process, I'm not sure I even really know, but like, I wasn't a part of it from the beginning. And I think that can be a really, really big part of the process that maybe people 
don't realize it's like how much that sort of shape shifting of who's in the room and and who's working on it can can kind of shape the piece. But yeah, that that was really collaborative. And I think that's a testament to Sarah, Sarah Brellis, who wrote the the music and lyrics. Like she was so she was so open to that process. She was like oddly not precious about her work in the sense that she would she was just so open to saying if something isn't working or if we need to change keys or is this lyric what you need here? Is there something else that maybe we haven't cracked this yet? Maybe I can go back and work on this and we're not getting this information. And Diane Paulus, who directed it, was the same way. She, I think Diane really needs to see stuff. So sometimes you just get have to get something up on its feet and she'd have to react to it and, and know. And then she would know, uh, no, that's not quite what I want. Or maybe this needs to go over here. That needs to go over there. So yeah, that was a very sort of intricate collaborative process. Yeah. Have you ever gone back and seen something, maybe maybe waitress, maybe beautiful, after you were out of it, and you know, notice something in the performance of the person who was playing the role you did that gave you a little smile, or you were like, "Oh, I know what they're going through at this moment," or they have to eat the pie here, or do this thing here. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm glad that's not me right now. <laughs> oh, totally. But you know what? Actually, the thing that I I did have the opportunity, both with beautiful and with waitress, actually, the thing that I feel like I noticed more was. I'd be watching and it, the brilliant actresses doing it. I'd you know seen several people do. I would be like, oh, that's what that's supposed to be. <laughs> they, I feel like they would have a moment of clarity about something that I had always felt like I, I hadn't cracked or they do something. And to me, that's the beauty of a good piece too, is that mm-hmm. different people can step into it and bring their own thing. And it, it comes alive in a whole new way. It has a whole new resonance. It has, you know, and that has so much to do with what an audience brings to things too, you know, yeah. how they relate, how they relate to what they're watching. But yeah, no, my smiles definitely came from, oh, that's a good idea. Oh, I wish I thought of that, you know, that sort yeah. of thing. <laughs> then there's definitely those moments of like, oh boy, now they're going to have to, oh gosh, they're almost to this part or they're, oh, the costume change is coming up. But I also had, seeing both of those shows, I had had enough time away where I was almost more surprised by it. Like I, my memory wasn't as fresh, I think Mm. of having done the show. So I could really, I could really sit as an audience member more and just enjoy it, which was really, which was really fun because when you're in it, you don't, you're just inside the story in such a different way. It was such a cool thing to watch the whole thing in a way that I had never been able to before. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. You, it gives you a little bit of that, um, creative distance, right? You you get that chance to step away. Exactly. Exactly. What would would you say is the best advice that you were given along the way and who gave you that advice? Hmm. Well, I remember, I remember Harry Connick Jr. at one point telling me just sort of along the lines of like, yeah, just like, just do your thing, Jess. And like, don't let anybody like, just do your thing. (laughs) And it's such like simple and it was probably very sort of offhanded in his mind, but it is something that I come back to because I respect him so much mm-hmm. as an artist and as a human being. I think it's the hardest thing to remember because I think in those doubtful moments or those dark moments, I can get really self-critical and it's like the last thing I want to do is my thing. I think that's not good enough. I don't think I belong or I don't think. And I think the best thing to remember is like, you have to do you. That's that's the only thing you've got. Mm-hmm. And if something's going to translate, if something's going to resonate if something's going to reach somebody, it has to be real. It has to be authentic. And the only way to do that is, is to do it, <laughs> you know? So I think that's something I, I always keep coming back to. Yeah. Was there a moment, 
you know, in doing the shows or uh, doing publicity for the shows where you just sort of had like a pinch yourself moment where you were afterwards, you were like, I can't believe I just did that. Or I can't believe that just happened um, along the way. Oh, sure. I mean, I would just say in general, the being inside of it, like the being inside what I think of like the fancy things, the quote unquote fancy mm-hmm. things, like if yeah. you go to a press event or if you're on a TV show or da, 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 da. like it feels so different from the inside than if you, if you witness it from the outside, like maybe the rest of the world sees it. It is this weird thing of like, oh, look, there's that girl. Oh, that looks like me. That's, and you're like, oh, that, that is me. Well, that's not what it felt. Oh, look, I'm on the thing or I'm on the TV show or that's the, it's just weird. It's yeah, w- it's weird. I don't even know how to describe it. Like the side of the bus moment. <laughs> sure. Or, right. There's like a billboard in Times Square. And you're like, oh, guess that's my face. <laughs> but it's like, it, I mean, it is, I guess it's, it's a version of, yeah, that's a version of me, I guess. Uh, it's very odd. Very yeah. odd. Yeah. What would you say uh, to somebody like you who has, you know, very similar dreams of being on Broadway and doing the same thing that you've, you're doing, what would you say to somebody? Hmm. Oh boy. Where to start? Take care of yourself. Hey, we're, I just feel like we're in a moment of reckoning with so many things. I think the theater is in a good moment of reckoning in terms of our awareness of representation, our awareness of how we're treating people, our awareness of what's important to put out in the world and, and how it's important for everybody's stories to be told and realizing that that it hasn't been that way. I feel like I've gone on a tangent, but it does, it does relate when you're young and you're excited and you're getting into it, you're, you're in that place, but don't, don't forget, like, if you want to stay in it, if you want to be in it for the long haul, you got to take care of yourself. You got to surround yourself with people who are going to keep you sane and grounded and going to lift you up. And when you get pulled into all the stupid shit, they're going to bring you back. They're going to remind you about what's important. They're going to tell you that it doesn't matter what so-and-so is doing. Like you're going to do your thing and you've got your path and God has this intended for you. And like, you're not following this rule book. Like you've got your own trajectory. You've got your own journey. I I think, especially as a young person getting into this business, not telling people to not dream or want to achieve things, but just just keep checking in, keep checking in and taking care of yourself because no one else is really going to do that for you. Some people might say they're going to do that and look out for you, but it's, it's very rare that someone will. And that's not a terrible thing necessarily. It's just, everybody has their own job. Everybody has their own agenda. So your job is to take care of yourself mm-hmm. and do your work. Um, other people have other things going on. And unfortunately you're not usually first on their list. So you gotta, you gotta do that work for yourself. Are you hopeful for the future of, of theater and hopeful for the, the future generations of theater artists? I am hopeful. I'm hopeful though, because I think of what, of what I'm seeing and the changes I'm seeing and that young people are hopeful. I'm, I'm seeing, I've changed as a person. My priorities are not what they were when I was starting out doing this in my twenties. But like, I see that excitement in people of that age. And if I'm being completely honest, sometimes it's like, whoa, I want to, I want to like take them aside and protect them and like put them in a little bubble. But you know, everybody knows what they know when they know it. So I am hopeful. Um, but I'm, I'm not as naive as I used to be. 
I think there's a lot that still needs to be done. Um, and I don't know exactly what that is. I'm not going to pretend like I know, but, um, I think there are people out there who are like really, who are really hungry to keep making things better. And that gives me hope. I hope that there is a way to truly revalue theater, to truly revalue live performance, both in the work that's being made, the people who are making it. And that comes from all sides, performers, artisans, crew people, producers. Like, I hope we can keep having these conversations so we can keep getting better at understanding what we all do and that we're all trying to make this stuff happen and it's hard and it's really expensive. I want us to do better because also I want it to stop being so expensive for the people who want to come see it. You know, I don't want people to get boxed out from the experience of watching something unfold and the magic of something happening in front of them that's live because they can't afford it or they don't feel like it's for them or they don't feel like someone's telling their story. Like, why would this apply to me? Why would I? So I, I hope that 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 can happen, that it can find a way because it really is unlike anything else. And I think now actually is a really amazing time for live performance because we've been without it for so long that if we ever are going to realize the the essential nature of why it is so different and powerful, like now is the time. So I hope that we can, I don't know, say we, like I don't even know who the we is, but yeah, I hope that that can happen. Whoa, Jesse is so amazing. What first drew you to wanting to speak with Jesse? Yeah, well, Jason, like you said in the opening, I was a stage manager before I got into advertising and I moved to New York City in 2011, which was also the same year that Jesse did on a clear day. And I remember sitting there watching that show and thinking to myself, wow, Jesse's going to be a star. And in hindsight, that's probably not very profound because a lot of people probably predicted her success. But as Waitress and Beautiful came out, I just never forgot on a clear day and how amazing she was in that first show. Joey, that's so cool that you were eventually able to chat with her. Yeah, and it was such a joy. She was so kind and warm and thoughtful throughout the entire conversation. Awesome. Tell us how our listeners can learn more about Jesse. Jesse does not have social media that she manages. There are plenty of fan accounts on Instagram, but I assure you, none of them are her. But if you really want to see Jesse in action, I would say head over to YouTube and start with the 2014 performance of Beautiful at the Tonys. Thanks, Joey. Well, that does it for us this week. The podcast team and I would like to thank Nina Pratt. If you'd like to hear more creators, founders, and inventors discuss how they use their gift to entertain the world, follow this feed wherever you listen to podcasts and check out all past episodes. Reach out to us with any questions and comments on Gray's social channels or our email address, podcasts at gray.com. And lastly, tell someone about our show. It helps us share these ideas with the world. I'm Jason Connor, and thanks for listening to Gray Matter, a podcast about ideas. Gray Matter is hosted by Jason Connor, produced by Samantha Geller and Samantha Alvarado, mixed by Guy Rosemarin and Amanda Fuentes at Gramercy Park Studios, with post-production support from Ned Martin, Robin Frank, and Kyle St. Agath. Marketing and administrative support by Christina Hyde, Adrian Hopkins, Marcelo Basilar, 
and Gina Cuneo. Editor and executive producer, Joey Scarillo. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is to put famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.